Welcome to Grace and Peace Radio with your hosts, Anthony and Amy Russo. Grace and Peace Radio is a weekly Christian podcast where together we'll discuss how we can apply God's Word to everyday life. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. It's our hope that you will be encouraged and God will be glorified. And with that, let's start the show. For those who don't know him, let me please introduce uh, Jim Neuheiser. Jim is the director of the Christian Counseling Program and associate professor of practical theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. He served in pastoral ministry for over 30 years in Southern California and Saudi Arabia. He has served as the director of the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship since 2006. He's a fellow and a board member of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors and is a council board member of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. And Jim has been practicing biblical counseling since 1982. Of the various things that he's written and published, we're here today to talk about his latest book, Money, Debt, and Finances, Critical Questions and Answers. Jim, thank you so much for being with us today here on Grace and Peace Radio. It is a pleasure to meet you. I'm very happy to be with you, and I'm really glad to meet you. For listeners, I was saying to Jim before I hit record that I feel like I know him because I'd watched videos during mine and Amy's ACBC, Biblical Counseling Training, and Jim was doing the mock counseling in those sessions. So I'd seen him on video and everything. So again, welcome, Jim. Thank you. So before we dive into it, take a minute, please, and just tell listeners about your book. What is Money, Debt, and Finances? Tell us about it. Sure. There have been a few things in my life where it's kind of been an interest of mine for a lifetime. And actually, the previous book that's in the same series, more or less, was Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, which was 40 questions and answers of about the same length. And so this is a similar format where it's the kind of thing you could read straight through or you could use it as a reference, but it's pretty comprehensive. I've actually written a a mini book about finances. I've written a devotional about finances, but this is kind of everything I know pretty comprehensively. And the premise is that the Bible speaks wisely and comprehensively to all of life and there are biblical principles that apply in financial matters. Uh, from you know, earning, investing, saving, giving, in every category. And of course, the focus would be that this is an area of life which we want to live to the glory of God as we would marriage or other things, and you know, like especially in terms of vocation. Uh, part of my burden for the book is there are a lot of practical books and popular people on the radio selling books and that are kind of in a broad sense Christian, but maybe not as exegetically or theologically deep. And so I really want to ground what I say in the explanation of Scripture while making it practical, but also grounding it in sound theology and scriptural exposition. You you do that well. Like I told you, I would, I'm about four-fifths through the book, and I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it so far. I appreciate it that it's it's not in a read cover to cover sort of way. You can just pop in and find what you need. There are five major parts or categories of the book. 
and together they answer 41 practical financial questions. Part 1, General Principles. And it addresses questions like, how can the Bible speak to our modern, complex financial issues? What is the cause of our financial problems? What are common misunderstandings about money? What is money? Part 2 is about acquiring money. And it addresses questions like, what are some common misunderstandings about acquiring money? Why is our work so important? What are the keys to success in your vocation? May Christians gamble? Part 3 is about spending money. These are questions like, what are some common misunderstandings about spending money? How much of your money belongs to God? How much should you give? Part 4 deals with debt. It addresses questions like, what are common misunderstandings about debt? What does the Bible teach about debt? Is there a wise way to use credit cards? And a very important question, how can you get out of debt? Part 5 is preparing for the future. It deals with questions like, what are some common misunderstandings about preparing for your financial future? Why do Christians need to save? In practical terms, how should savings be accumulated? What are the general principles for investing? What are the kinds of investments available? And what are the risks? And then in the appendices, Jim gives budget templates and balance sheets and lists Randy Alcorn's treasure principles. And the book rounds out with recommended resources and an index of scripture verses and subjects and names. This book with marriage season, wedding season, and graduation season coming up on us, it really does make a great gift for that couple or that graduate. It's just a lot of good, solid information in one easy-to-read, comprehensive resource. It's kind of like, in case of financial emergency, break glass. What I found about it, it's honest truth, but it's not judgmental. You don't feel beat up reading this book. If you've come to it and you've made financial mistakes, it doesn't beat you up about it. And I, I just love the, the great writing style. It's clear. It's conversational. It's not overburdened with lingo or jargon or any of that. As someone who has made almost every mistake that you talk about in the book, I can't recommend the book highly enough. It is the money mentor I, I never had. So I, I really do appreciate what you've done and taking the time to write this book. Well, yeah. thank you so much. Yeah. I've made lots of those mistakes also, and I've counseled lots of people through those mistakes. In terms of it being non-judgmental, one really important principle for me also is that we do not want to put people under rules that are more strict than the Bible. And there's a difference between this is a wise thing to do and this is a sinful thing to do. And so we have a great deal of freedom. Actually, one of the main ideas in the book is that the Bible doesn't say this is the lifestyle you should live, or you know, if you've given this amount, it's enough, or this is how much you should save. And so we're, we're having to live in freedom with tension, seeking wisdom based on the, the principles of Scripture. And then there are certain, you know, don't steal, don't be lazy commands of Scripture, but there are a lot of, that we have a lot of freedom how we work things out. And Certainly, I can look back on my life and I've done many of the unwise things the Bible warns against, and I'm thankful for God's mercy to me. Amen to that. Why do you think so many Christians struggle with rightly handling finances? 
There are probably many reasons. Uh, I think one reason can be there can be kind of a false anti-worldliness saying, you know, money is the root of all evil rather than the love of money being the root of all evil. And so, you know, historically you've had people who were ascetic or monks or something, and you can even get into that mentality today where you have people who think, well, if I'm really going to serve the Lord, I have to be poor and I have to work as a pastor, a missionary. And I actually dedicate the book to people who have been very productive and wealthy by using the gifts God has given them, which is what's allowed me to be a pastor, which has allowed me to be a seminary professor, because people have given a lot of money to my church and to my seminary and to IBCD. And so I'm really glad for productive people. Uh, they don't they don't love money, I trust, but they're generous and rich in good works. So that would be one extreme. We're seeing work as a curse when really work is something God does and we work in his image. The, the curse has made work difficult, but work is a good thing. And then maybe the most common problem among Christians is they've mistaken the bankrupt values of the world, which is the other extreme, is that, you know, if you're, if, if God loves you, he's going to make you very, very rich, or even life is about making money and having possessions. And so many believers are obsessed with treasures on earth, which is the culture in which we live that, and then I guess another aspect of the culture in which we live is the folly of debt, you know, which you see it nationally, corporately, and individually in terms of, I must have these possessions, even if I have to get into a lot of debt foolishly to have it. So there are all kinds of unbiblical approaches people have, and I'm glad you think I was gentle, but I try to explain from Scripture why these are wrong and then positively lay out how we should look at these various, various aspects of our financial life. Jumping into the actual book itself, I'm not normally a preface guy, but I found even so much to talk about in the preface, which is kind of a funny thing between my wife and I. She loves reading the, the prefaces of books. And one of the things you, you mentioned even there is many people with other presenting problems also have major financial challenges. When you talk about presenting problem, would that be for, for those unfamiliar with biblical counseling, would that be like someone who maybe is going to the doctor because they're extremely overweight and now they've got like bad knees or a bad back or something? Well, and I'm thinking in terms of biblical counseling, which I know you do as well, where people who come in where they're struggling with a lack of self-control could be with food, with alcohol or conflict in marriage or other issues, just like worry that I'm surprised how often finance finances are occasionally the presenting problem. Like we recently counseled a couple who lost their house because of financial mismanagement. But oftentimes it's it's a secondary issue, which is, by the way, one reason it's really hard to make a living as a biblical counselor, because our counselees usually don't have much money. But um, I think yeah, a lack of order in your life in other areas will often manifest itself in the financial realm as well. Although as we continue in the book, we would also say that often like in a marriage, until you can get the essential marriage problems addressed where the husband and the wife have sought one another's forgiveness and are working together in a godly way, communicating as a team, a budget isn't going to solve any of their problems because 
you know, of the conflict they have with each other and they won't follow it. You have to have a, a level of love and cooperation to be able to agree on financial wisdom. Right, right. And that really, you talk about going farther into the book, and that is something that you bring up uh, when you say around page 35, most of our money problems are spiritual. And then you go on to say, the solution to most financial problems begins not merely with a budget or a plan to get out of debt. Rather, we need to address our hearts. Can you expound on that a little bit more, how the heart plays into to that? Sure. Um, a passage I love is Isaiah 55, where the Lord invites us to come to the waters, come by and eat without money, without cost, you know, buy wine and milk. But then it says, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? And so if people believe that the newest phone or the fanciest new electric car or clothes or gourmet meals or travel is going to make them happy. And that's in their heart rather than finding their joy and contentment in the Lord. They're going to get themselves into huge financial trouble and they'll keep spending money and it'll never satisfy them anyway. So that would be an example of where Paul talks in Philippians 4 that he's learned the secret of contentment, both to have much or little, that he has learned to be content. And so you know, why, why do I think I must have this thing? And if I'm looking to what money can buy as the means of gaining what I only can really get from the Lord, I'm going to be frustrated and then I'm going to be broke. There are two phrases that I, I latched onto farther in the book that I want to discuss briefly. And the first is in the section about debt, plastic surgery. To, uh-huh. tell, tell listeners what, what plastic surgery is. Well, I think what you're referring to is just getting rid of your credit cards or not using them improperly. That, again, I can't say from the Bible you're not allowed to use credit cards or debit cards, but for many people, it's kind of a Matthew 5 29 if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And so, you know, using means to live within what God is giving you and living within your income. And it's really difficult. Uh, I guess just like you know, you put food in front of a glutton or beer in front of a drunkard, or you, a person who tries to find satisfaction in buying things, if they're at the mall and, or I guess now online and shopping, and even if they have no money in the bank and not enough coming in, they can immediately get stuff. And I, I was dealing with a case recently where somebody's spending way beyond their income and they're kind of unhappy and they're trying to address the unhappiness by spending, but Obviously, the plastic makes that easy yeah. temporarily. Yeah. Right. The rush of the Amazon truck rolling up. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. When my wife and I are walking, we think, is that truck going to our house? And what is it in, uh, in the old movie where, uh, the I think it was Ron Howard, sings about the Wells Fargo wagon. You know, maybe there's something in there for me. Right, back, right, right. Back in the, the, what is that, Music Man, I believe. Yeah. You know, that one was was witty and clever, talking about cutting up your credit cards and plastic surgery. The other one I, I read, it, it jarred me because it, it's such a sobering phrase, was financial infidelity. Tell listeners about that. What, what is financial infidelity? Yeah, I have had many counseling cases where one spouse is hiding spending from the other. And one case, even draining their retirement for 
you know, wasteful, sinful spending. And so, uh, yeah, this is an area where there has to be trust. That that gets back to the budget. Proverbs 21.5 says that the plans of the diligent lead to advantage and one who's hasty comes to poverty. And I think that's a good verse to establish the principle of living within a budget. But there had, fidelity would be, I've said I'm going to spend this much per month on clothes or, you know, sporting goods or books or whatever my thing is. And it's infidelity if you're lying and you're spending beyond what you've agreed each person can spend. And for some people, what money can buy is like drugs are for other people. And that can be a real challenge. Like I said, I, I read that and I, I was I was really struck by that. It's just one of those, the secret sins that come out in in a marriage. Uh, and I just never thought of the, the financial aspect. Yeah. Well, I've, again, since you brought it up, thinking of a particular counseling case, you know, where a wife drags her husband in to see Caroline and me, and she's getting calls from creditors saying that, you know, the credit cards have been shut down and she sees on the credit card statement, these charges that she didn't even know about. And it's as if, her husband had been with another woman where he was in her mind, living a double life and violating trust. And, you know, I'm thankful the Lord brought healing to that marriage and we're good friends with those people and they're doing well, but it, yeah, it is very similar. Turning that around. How can a couple who maybe haven't been a Christian couple who maybe haven't given finances the attention that they deserve, how can they sort of turn the page together on this and start coming together as a couple and biblically dealing with their finances? Yeah. um, I think that the idea of, again, looking to the heart in terms of where have we been guilty of sinfully making an idol of what money can buy or being poor stewards of the money that God has given us. Uh, not keeping our word to each other, and there's probably going to be some repenting to be done of acting sinfully or unwisely. And then I really do believe in the principles of Scripture. There's wisdom in the Bible to get you out of financial difficulty, typically, in terms of, you know, we need to, I mean, there's so many different levels. It's making a budget and living within your means, but also there's a lot in the book about how the Bible teaches that we can increase our income or our wealth. And the Bible teaches Proverbs 10 is the hand of the diligent makes rich, but also the proverb says, you see a man skilled in his work, he will stand before kings, he will not serve ordinary men. So summarizing, you work hard and you work smart, you work the more hours, but also you try to find a way you can make $40 an hour instead of $6 an hour. Uh, you know, by acquiring better skills so that your labor is more value to other people. And then you avoid the get-rich-quick schemes that try to circumvent God's way of making money in terms of, you know, you can, with little work and no skill, you can make lots of money. That's the way to financial disaster. The one who is hasty to be rich becomes poor. The one who, you know, it's little by little wealth is gathered as you till your own land, the proverb says. So, there are all kinds of different issues. Uh, there's actually another little book that I wrote with New Growth Press called Financial Crisis. And um, it actually deals with a very particular question. What does a family do when they're in horrible trouble and kind of steps to take 
that would be embedded in the bigger book, but this is kind of dealing with that one kind of narrow problem that kind of like the family I said, where they lost their home and, you know, the credit cards are maxed out and you know, what, what steps do you take, which can be selling things. It can be working extra jobs. Uh, it can be negotiating with, with creditors like Proverbs six seems to describe, you know, that you're seeking mercy from people when you've foolishly gotten yourself into a mess. It's amazing how, again, just how scripture addresses so many things for us and, and really guides us and gives us wisdom. One of the recent episodes of Grace and Peace Radio, Amy and I, we discussed that idea of preparing for life's surprises, uh, be it a job loss, uh, the, you know, a national economic downturn, medical emergency. What's the one or two things that you would suggest to listeners who maybe are listening to this and are, are thinking, you know, if something did happen, I'm, I'm really not prepared. And I don't right. even know where, what the first step would be. What, what would sure. you say to them? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of that in this book in terms of planning for the future. And, you know, the proverb also says that the wise, when they see evil, they hide themselves. So we anticipate trouble in Proverbs 6, the ant knows that winter is coming and he stores up grain. And so there's some future events we know that may are likely to happen. It's likely someday I will be incapable of earning enough money to live. And so there's wisdom in saving for that. I know that my cars will wear out. And rather than acting surprised when I need a new one, I can uh, prepare for that. And then it is possible you may lose your job or there may be major expenses. One of the things we talk about in the book is insurance, where more people are likely to be disabled than die. And so disability insurance can be a way of protecting your family in case something happened to you that you could not continue to work. Uh, the conventional wisdom, you know, maybe is strive to have several months of savings so that if you're between jobs, you can be prepared for that. Although part of it, I think it's really important, like in the parable of the rich fool, Nothing can prepare you for death but the gospel. And, you know, if you were a Jew living in Nazi Germany, there's no amount of savings that would have kept you safe other than getting out in time. And so things could happen in the economy with hyperinflation or depression or a worse pandemic than the one we're having. So our, our ultimate hope is God, not there's no level of, you know, the guy who built the bigger barns, well, he still died. And so I think it's not wrong to make reasonable preparation for the future. And yet our ultimate hope has to be that the Lord will take care of us. Like Matthew 6 says, he clothes the field and he feeds the birds. And so this is kind of a lot of the tension that's in the book. And because it's reflecting the tension in the Bible, it's wise to prepare for things that seem possible or likely. Like I would say with investing, it's wise to diversify because you don't know whether someday the stock market will crash or real estate will be a better thing or metals or uh, whatever. Um, and so you know, having some diversification, having some savings, but then also uh, we want to be generous in giving to the Lord's work. And uh, we want, you know, and also God has given us things to enjoy. So we're, we're addressing all of those things without there being a precise mathematical formula. This is how you should save. This is how you should give. This is the lifestyle you should live. 
we have a lot of freedom there. Again, ultimately, you know, again, if you're foolish and you don't prepare for the future, you will be blamed to some degree for the bad things that happen to you or your family. But if you make reasonable preparation, it can, it's never going to be bulletproof because the Lord can take it all away if he chooses to bring judgment upon the nation or community where you live. We talked about how there's a, a sliding scale of security that you have total security on one side, total freedom on the other, but you can't have both. You've got to set that slider somewhere. And I think it's the same as you talked about it with preparation. You can prepare only so much and ultimately we leave it to the Lord. It's not like, well, okay, we, we've done all we can do. And then we leave the rest of the Lord. It, it really starts the opposite. You know, we, we trust the Lord first and we, then we do our, right. our part. And no matter what we do, I can look in history and see situations where whatever we did wouldn't have worked. So you save gold and then your government confiscates the gold and gives you pennies for it. Or you have the currency and there's hyperinflation and the currency is worthless or they confiscate your property. You, know, you have land or so I mean, just there is no secure or you yourself get sick and you know, just so our ultimate security has to be the Lord, which is very comforting. And I know in my own saving and investing, I look back and boy, if I'd have done things differently, the seminary wouldn't have to pay me. As it happens, I do need them to pay me uh, and hope for some book royalties on top of that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, our hope is in the Lord and we're not going to get these things perfectly either. Even you, know, you, you can look ahead and say, well, this may happen or that may happen. We don't know. With all of that, there's so many stories of, of God's providence, of God's mercy, of his kindness and his grace in, even in my own life, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of all how so many of the examples you give are things that mistakes I've made. And you said the same. And yet we both could sit here for another hour and talk about all the times that God was merciful and provided and God helped us to avoid some storm or something like that. Yeah, I agree. I fully agree that when I was in my twenties and I yearned to go to seminary and didn't want to make my wife work when she wanted to have kids. And I got sent to Saudi Arabia against my will and saved a bunch of money so I could go to seminary without going into debt or making my wife leave the kids at home. And when our church needed a building, the Lord provided a building in Southern California where buildings are incredibly expensive and our church had no money. And and so we do look to God as our provider, and he is kind and gracious to his people. And again, it's, it's, there's the both and where we're to be responsible, but then the Lord is so gracious and good and merciful that we're ultimately dependent upon him, and he treats us better than we deserve. If a listener is hearing this now, and they are feeling overwhelmed by their financial situation, wh- whether it's something that came upon them that had was not of their doing, or it was something of their own sinful making, or just a just a lack of wisdom. Um, what what hope would you offer them? It's the hope of the scripture. I mean, I just think of passages like in Psalm twenty three, you know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, that God is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. He's with. He doesn't just. He doesn't leave us there. We walk through. We keep going. And he does not leave us nor forsake us. I've recently been uh, spending time in the book of Ruth. 
And here's Naomi, who I think did some foolish things in the time of famine. She left the house of bread in Bethlehem to go to a pagan land, married off her sons to pagan women. And yet God still showers mercy on Bethlehem and Israel and gives them food and gives Naomi food and gives Naomi a daughter-in-law who produces a son and carries on the family name. And so God is a very merciful God and he will help you through these troubles. I think this is a reason it's very important to be a part of the community of God's people. In the old covenant, they were said, there will be no poor among you. And in the early church as a community, uh, they were there for each other. A big aspect of the early church was caring for widows, caring for other people in need. Uh, even one area, one region of the church, the Gentile church is sending money to the church in Judea. And so I think as being members, you know, first, first Timothy 5 would say, you know, in your own family, being ready to help them or they'll keep you from homelessness. And if you're a member, a committed member of a godly church, you may lose your house. You may not have any money in the bank, but I would hope there'd be somebody who would take you in if you're a faithful Christian, even if you did some stupid things. And that crisis is a terrible time to be spiritually homeless. Uh, that was all, you know, I, when I was pastoring in Southern California, people would come into the church saying, oh, I'm in this terrible situation. We've never seen them before. Well, who knows your testimony? What church are you a part of? What family? Yeah, just good. Time of crisis is not the time to be looking for a church. Uh, and, you know, Paul tells us to be a little careful of people coming asking for money. Um, so it's trusting the Lord. Like, again, like the Lord took care of Ruth and Naomi, he had gleaning and, you know, through his people, you know, trusting he will provide. And a lot of times what we really suffer in our culture or our society would be not starvation or homelessness, but just the loss of lifestyle where you, you owned a house, now you're renting an apartment. Uh, you could go out to eat, now you have to eat at home all the time, which then may force us to find our joy and contentment in the Lord anyway. Finances can be a very sanctifying tool by the Lord. Yes, uh, you know, yeah. give us today our daily bread, and probably the people listening, like you and I, would say there have been many times in life where we did not know how we would be able to get past certain financial hurdles, and the Lord took care of us, and He was faithful. You know, the psalmist says, "I was young, and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread," and I find that to be true as well. Agreed. Absolutely. I can't think of a better, better way to, to sum up the, the conversation than that. And so, so Jim, thank you very, very much. Listeners can pick up your book where pretty much everywhere, Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to my both joy and consternation at this very moment, Amazon is actually backordered, but that's good news. <laughs> that is good news. The books. Uh, Westminster Books has the book available right now, and some other Christian book outlets do. Excellent. Um, and Westminster, I think, has a pretty good deal going for a while. So, yeah, it is pretty widely available. And uh, I'm very thankful to PNR, really done a great job uh, putting it together and letting people know about it. And I'm excited, like I said, that I actually majored in business in college. Uh, my 20s were kind of my fat cow years where I earned a lot of money working overseas. And then I learned how to manage it for the next 30 years after that. 
and then just been really interested in studying what the scripture says. So it's kind of like everything I've learned in a lifetime. And it's a book I've talked about writing for more than a decade. And I'm really thankful to the Lord. Actually, it was COVID that allowed me to write it, where suddenly everything shut down and classes weren't meeting. And so I'm stuck at home and uh, I finally got the thing done. So I'm very, that's a good thing that for us came out of COVID. It's your financial magnum opus. Uh, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't write anything any bigger, I'll tell you that much. Well, that's our show for today. I hope you'll join us next time as we spend time in God's Word looking at how we can grow in our knowledge of Him, our love for Him, and our service to Him. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, visit us at graceandpeaceradio.com or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash graceandpeaceradio. Until next time, I'm your host, Anthony Russo, and Jesus changed my life.